That beat makes you want to freestyle, doesn't it? Admit it, you want to flow, as we called it, flowing back in the day. Do you flow? Can you flow? Something that was much cooler when I was 18, 19, 20. Now I'm 36. Nobody wants to hear me flow at a dinner party. Can somebody please drop a beat? I'm already noticing some of the things about me are just dad dork status. Not sure how this happened so quickly. Would love to still feel kind of young, but freestyling? Yeah, thing of the past. You're 18, 19, 20 years old. All of a sudden, people start rhyming. People start rapping right off the top of their mind in the backyard of a keg party. You join in. You successfully drop some rhymes. That's a cool moment. You look good. Now, because we progressively become more boring as we age, you go to a dinner party. Hey, would anybody like to freestyle? Uh, of course not. And I'm going to put uh, breakdancing in that category. Not like I was ever a real breakdancer, a true wannabe at one point, but I had a couple of moves where I could fool people into thinking that maybe there's more. You know, get in the circle, do a couple of weird things, and then just quickly get out. Get in, get out. Convince people, hey, maybe he is a breakdancer. But back in the day, that was some cool shit. Nowadays, 36-year-old in a breakdance circle? When would that happen? At a wedding? Shatter my femur. Immediately tear a ligament. Nobody needs to see that. So I'm entering the territory of boring human nowadays. Although maybe that's the key, is to incorporate a little more freestyling and breakdancing into my life. Okay, here we go. I'm going to adopt a phrase from Sarah Silverman in her last stand-up comedy special. She said, I'm gonna sh- let me just pin it when she would start a topic and not finish it. And I realize that could be annoying for a listener, but I'm just going to start a few topics and not finish them. Uh, here we go today. Andre the Giant documentary coming up on HBO in April. Are you kidding me? We're going to jump into that. Full throttle jump into that. I'm going to get into social media, rewiring our brains, a bit of an overkill situation, and then I'll just give you the key to life. No big deal. But if you make it through this podcast, at some point, I will explain the key to life. That is my gift to you, and yes, it is free. Not even asking for a review. I don't even need you to subscribe. I'm not begging you to follow me on any platform. I'm just saying, if you make it to the end of this damn podcast, I will give you the key to life. You're welcome. Okay, I was watching HBO, I forget why, maybe crashing the Pete Holmes show, but they showed a promo, a commercial, for an upcoming documentary, and yes, like I mentioned, Andre the fucking giant is going to be the subject. Clearly, I love documentaries, but it totally jogged my memory to a time when Andre the giant was huge, and I don't just mean physically, of course, I mean huge in pop culture. The first movie I ever saw in a movie theater was The Princess Bride. And the joke, no more rhymes and I meet it, anybody want a peanut, you know it, is still fucking funny. That's still funny. When Wally, I think his name was Wally, inconceivable, doesn't want to hear any more rhyming on the ship, and Andre the Giant, I think Fezzik was his name, no more rhymes and I mean it, anybody want a peanut, still one of the great punchlines in movie history. And I remember being in the theater for that, pretty sure I fell asleep, but loving Andre the Giant. What kid did not love Andre the Giant? And then my second love in the world of sports, and I don't want to call it entertainment back then because it was sports to me, damn it, was WWF. Of course, my first love, Warriors Hoops. But my second love, 
and this is 1988, 1989, 1990, a young, impressionable mind watching wrestling for the first time and thinking it was all real, not realizing it was totally scripted. And I realize they are athletic, but it's not exactly sports. But back then, the assortment of characters, it was just eye candy for a little kid. And it was good old-fashioned propaganda as well with some of those racial profiling type of characters they had in WWF. And I even got to go live once at the Oakland Coliseum. My dad and I were seats in the house, but it was still exhilarating. You know, enough to see with binoculars what's going on. We were that far up. And the main event, it was the Hulkster. And I was a true Hulkamaniac. I'm pretty sure I was a part of a fan club where they sent me things. Like a certificate that I put on my wall that I was an official Hulkamaniac. Uh, signed picture of the Hulkster. I'm still waiting on my yellow Speedo and breakaway yellow tank top. But it was more than being a fan. I'm pretty sure I worshipped Hulk Hogan. I took it to a different level. Probably a sick level where I just thought about the Hulkster all day. When it comes crashing down and it hurt. You know the song. I was just streaming through my head at all times. And when he would come into the ring, holy shit. Get the chills. But the one time I did see Hulk live, the main event was Hulk Versus Andre the Giant. And I'm not sure who scripted it, but about 30 seconds into the match, Andre the Giant gets stuck in the ropes and Hulk just beats the shit out of him. And then he rolls him out, body slams him, bop, 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 one, two, three. The wonderful referee slaps the mat and Hulk wins and they play the music, I am a real American, which is the greatest entrance music ever. Fight for what's right. Okay, you know it. But I do remember being disappointed. Like, why not wrestle a little more? Why does Andre have to get stuck in the ropes? Is this how the tour is? Now I realize, you know, it's like a traveling circus. They're on tour the next night, probably in Seattle. They bring Andre into a production meeting. Hey, hey, Big Dre. How you doing, big guy? You get enough to eat at the buffet? Uh-huh. Okay, so for tonight's main event, we're going to think uh, maybe you get stuck in the ropes again and Hulk just beats the shit out of you. Okay. The next night, they're on to Portland, the traveling WWF circus with the buses. And then they pull in Terry. They probably call him Terry, Hulk Hogan in a meeting. And Andre, hey, big guy, have a seat. We were just thinking for tonight's show, uh, maybe you come out, grapple a little bit, throw a punch, and then you're going to get stuck in the ropes and Hulk's going to just beat the fuck out of you in front of about 20,000 people. You good with that? Great. That was the tour for Andre the Giant. On tour, just getting stuck in the ropes. That's not very creative writing. It's not very imaginative. I think they could have used him better. And then they threw him into a bunch of tag teams throughout his career. But this guy, they listed at seven foot four, five hundred and twenty fucking pounds out of France. Well, I mean, he really was out of France. But was he really seven foot four, five hundred and twenty pounds? I realize they inflated the tail of the tape with a lot of these wrestlers. But shit. You had Andre the Giant in the ring, no muscle definition, just a big black singlet on this gorilla-looking guy, total celebrity, and that's all you have him doing is getting stuck in the ropes? I needed more back then as a kid. But it all came crashing down for me. It all came crashing down, and I remember this vividly. It was WrestleMania. I was about nine years old, so that's 1990, and the big main event, the crescendo, was the ultimate warrior taking on Hulk Hogan. And keep in mind, I still think this is real. 
And my good friend in the neighborhood, his parents got it on pay-per-view. So you have a bunch of nine-year-olds just wrestling in the living room. And then when it's showtime, Ultimate Warrior, Hulk Hogan, we are just glued to the screen. And it was a long match, you know, for our small attention span back then. It was a long match. And I remember the broadcasters hyping it up that Hulk is injured. And I didn't like that. I didn't like that at all. And I'm sure zero of you remember, but the Ultimate Warrior won. And in that instant, my life came crumbling down. I honestly believe I was depressed, as depressed as a nine-year-old could be, because I was a Hulkamaniac. That was a true commitment. That was a true affiliation to be in that fan club. So to see the Ultimate Warrior as his face paint melted off in his own sweat, and then by then, by the end of that match, Hulk Hogan's stringy yellow hair was just damp, and he didn't look so good. They said he broke his legs, probably. I'll, I'll just believe it. But I was still believing everything. And I was so down that day. And I was so down the next day. That by the following day, my older sister sat me down and said, Look, you fucking idiot. It's fake. It's scripted. None of it is real. And in that moment, just like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy, I realized that I had been duped and my life would be changed forever. I never watched wrestling again. Ever. So that's really just a two-year span of life. Where I was into it, really liked it, thought the characters were cool. I was probably brainwashed with American propaganda to hate the Russians because the Bolsheviks were the bad guy tag team. And of course, the Orient Express, we were taught to hate the Japanese tag team as well, managed by Mr. Fuji, who used to use his cane to attack the opposing wrestlers. God, these memories are weird. But my sister's big reveal was the last moment. That was it. Never watched wrestling again. Cold turkey, quit. Don't need to be seeing this anymore. I don't want to be fooled. These matches are predetermined. No, thank you. So I retired from the Hulkamaniac fan club. Big retirement. My whole family had to watch me at the podium. It is with a heavy heart that I stepped down from my position as a Hulkamaniac. But that long rant was basically me saying I got so excited to see an Andre the Giant documentary promo coming to HBO, all the feelings came back. And they're going to tell a great story, I know, because Lev Schreiber will be their narrator, who narrates every HBO sports documentary, including the miniseries Hard Knocks. Every August, Lev Schreiber makes preseason NFL stories sound very interesting, very important, because he has the greatest voice of all time. I honestly believe that. Of every voice I've ever heard, Lev Schreiber narrating HBO documentaries is the best. Early the next morning, the Kansas City Chiefs take the practice field, not knowing that the special teams would be greatly decreased by lunch. Schreiber will take any topic and just make it sound so good. In the offseason, the Baltimore Ravens picked up two long snappers. Only one can stay. And then all of a sudden, I care about that storyline. Hard Knocks is still the best. Not because the stories are any good. It's actually kind of a shitty show now, but with that narration... And that song, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, it remains watchable. It's going to be phenomenal, though. The Andre story. Outside of Princess Bride and wrestling, I know nothing. I, I had to Google him right after that promo, and I saw he died in his 40s. He was like 46 years old. Had gigantism, heart failure. Sad. He was lovable. Even though the WWF tried to make him a bad guy at some point. You couldn't hate Andre the Giant? Kidding me? All right, so earlier I said, put a pin in it. 
social media overkill rewiring our brains. And I'd love to be the guy that says, if I had all the minutes back from the time I spend on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I would be so productive. I would be reading, I'd be meditating, I'd be in shape. That's all bullshit. I'd find some other senseless, mind-numbing thing to do. But it is weird to think about how many minutes are dedicated to these social media platforms that are clearly ruining our minds. We all know that, right? We all see what's happening. I think it's okay to dissect it a little bit. Why am I even on this? Why, why do I even choose to tap these apps? And I'm just going to go through them real quick. I'll tell you the pros and cons. I'll tell you exactly why I'm still drawn to it in a weird way and why I know for a fact I have to retire from all of it in the near future. All right, so jog your memory back. Try. Just try to think of a time before Facebook, before Twitter, before Instagram, before whatever you're on Snapchat, and ask yourself how you would see photos from friends. They were hard copies. You would go to Long's or Payless, print them out, and share them like that, correct? But then you fast forward. Facebook, all of a sudden, gives you a platform to share photos. Makes sense. Sounds okay. And I did that birthright trip to Israel. And after the trip, I was asking people, could you send me that picture? Can you send me that picture? That picture from the wall, that picture from Masada, that picture from Tel Aviv. Can you send me, send me, send me? And everybody on the trip who was kind of younger than me, they said, just get on Facebook. And I said, no, I don't want to just get on Facebook. Actually, by that point, I had already been on MySpace and retired successfully from MySpace. So I was social media free, happily social media free. But then I remember I got on Facebook. This is about 2007, maybe 2008. And there are all my friends from this birthright trip to Israel are sharing photos. And I love it. Click like, click like, click like, poke, 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 click like, make a cute little witty comment under the photos. I'm feeling it. So it was just a online photo album to me. But now, wah, holy shit, what has it become? I go on it about 20 times a day. I don't have a clue why. I'm just a robot. I'm just programmed to go on Facebook. I look at a bunch of people's families posing and looking happy. I'm looking at what you're eating for dinner. I am clicking like on your new babies. And how long can this go on? Because it doesn't trigger a feeling of joy. It's just straight addiction at this point. So the pros and cons. Easy to see what the pros are. Great. I get a glimpse into your life. I get to see all these kids, your family. We all know birthdays are fun. Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg. Now everybody remembers your birthday and they leave you a nice little comment and an emoji. Oh, and it melts your heart. But the cons, well, you feel like you're in touch with people that you're not. So it probably diminishes your incentive to pick up the phone and call somebody because you go, "Eh, I'm all caught up with that person. I get what they're doing. They're going on hikes, they're drinking beers at the local breweries. I get it. I'm in touch. You're not. So simultaneously, people feel like they're more in touch with friends when they're as out of touch as they've ever been. Who is displaying the real shit from their lives on Facebook? Nobody. It's the great facade. And the other cons, of course, you have these couples who are wishing, you know, happy birthday to one another or happy anniversary to one another or just saying how much they love their wife or their husband. And you get the feeling like they're both just on their couch not actually saying these things to each other. I hate to sound so cynical, but can't you see this? Husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend on their couch, not speaking, but writing these messages to one another as they both just sit there staring at their phones, waiting on the likes to come in. Or even worse than that, the people that vacation. And you see them going to wonderful places, whether it's a beautiful Grand Canyon or going out to Europe, and they're putting too many photos up. And you're wondering, are you enjoying this trip? Are you actually taking the moment to be in 
this vacation, or are you just concerned about how it's being perceived, how it's being consumed, how it's being viewed by the people who are on your Facebook page? And of course I sound like a hypocrite. Of course. I will put up a couple of photos from a great vacation and then sit there and read some of the comments and realize, all right, I probably just lost 20 minutes of my vacation staring at this stupid screen. So I'm guilty of all this shit. All right, moving on to Twitter. Why the hell am I on Twitter? Uh, Years and years and years ago, I did not desire the immediacy of news and information. I was so old school, I still subscribed to the hard copy newspaper in San Diego, the UT. Every morning on my doorstep, that's how I got news. Or I watched the TV news from the previous night. But my buddy Judson, who's still on the radio down in San Diego, he was over at my spot and we were watching the Aztecs, Aztecs Colorado State basketball game. I remember this and he kept looking down at his phone and I thought that's kind of weird. He's missing plays and I wanted to share moments, but he said he was still invested in the game. He's just reading tweets from other people watching the game that we were watching, San Diego State basketball. And in that moment, I did not understand, but he said, just create an account, please. So I took his guidance and Judson put together an account for me. And he said, just do it. See what happens. It's almost like he knew the power of the Twitter addiction. So I did it and I didn't tweet, but I was on. I was on. You set up an account, you put up your profile photo, you're trying to get a few followers and then you're rolling. But I wasn't. And then you fast forward maybe a year later, I'm up in San Francisco starting off with 95.7 the game and they put me with a guy named Matt Steinmetz who I do like, good guy, very matter of fact type of guy. And I did a few radio shows with him and he said to me, Josh, you got to be on Twitter. If you're going to do sports radio nowadays, you got to be on Twitter. And he was right. You got to promote when your show is on, who your guests are going to be, try to cultivate a fan base. So at that point, I started tweeting, and I'm thinking that's 2013. And I still don't really tweet, but I am certainly on Twitter, and that's another thing I am drawn to throughout the day to just click, 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 and look at my own stream and pretend that that reflects society. And you're kind of shaping the world the way you want, because I'm choosing who to follow, usually like-minded people. And all of a sudden, that is my glimpse into the world, the outer world that I've shaped, people who think like me, athletes that I like, comics that I like, friends that I like, people that I like, former coworkers that I like. That's my feed. So is there a bias to what I consume? Hell yes. Now the pros are obvious. Quick news, quick news. I need to know it right now. The cons, people just reading headlines and not the story and feeling like they're informed. Or maybe that could be a pro too. At least more people know a little bit about more things nowadays thanks to Twitter. The cons, celebrity deaths. Is there anything more dismissive Then when a celebrity dies, the first five minutes on Twitter, everybody pretending that they were a fan of that person, telling a personal anecdote, and then moving right on to the next thing. Not to say that's actually a reflection of how people grieve and how people mourn. And you don't even have to mourn all of the celebrity deaths, but there's something about Twitter that makes people feel like they have to comment on every single celebrity death, like it meant something to them. It's kind of disgusting in a way. It's where I found out about Robin Williams' death, his suicide. And it was alarming because you read the first tweets, you go, is this real? And then you read 20 more tweets and you go, oh my gosh, it's real. And then the reaction, everybody is now going to talk about their favorite Robin Williams moments and their movies and his jokes. And then five minutes later, you're reading about the Giants and the Niners and you just watch as news passes too quickly. And everybody already told their stories about Popeye and Mrs. Doubtfire and Dead Poet Society. And now it's on to the next thing. And I was thinking, whoa, got to slow it down here. 
And the other thing about Twitter is it's too enticing to just click on all the stuff you shouldn't click on, like NFL fights, NFL stadium fights. I know I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't click on this, but there was a fight at the Eagles-Lions game in the stands. What happened? Okay, I click, I watch it, then I feel dirty. You know that feeling where you watch something and you go, ooh, I feel dirty, and I immediately have to Google a happy video. Everybody has their happy video. For me, it's bloodhound puppies or beagle puppies or bulldog puppies or bulldogs on skateboards or bulldogs on surfboards, something in the dog world. Uh, but yeah, Twitter shoves it in your face and then you click on it and it's all happening so quick. It's almost like there's no filter for impulse clicking and impulse commenting. You see people just yelling at each other on Twitter. You see these Twitter battles, these Twitter fights, and you realize, oh, we as a country do not know how to have discussions anymore. That's the one thing I really need to emphasize as a teacher is we can have conflicting viewpoints. We can get upset with one another, but you still got to know how to have a discussion. You know, not just an angry tweet at somebody, not just troll at somebody, you know, not to the point of cyberbullying somebody, but just have a discussion, an intellectual, intelligent discussion. Twitter is going to ruin that. Twitter is going to make people feel like it's okay to just write fuck off under somebody's tweet. No, you got to tell them why you feel so upset to type fuck off. Explain yourself. And finally, Instagram. I shouldn't be on it. I will get off of it soon. I got on it just because a few of my friends who are not on Facebook, they post on there and I wanted to see some pictures of their families and their kids. And then I decided to reinvent myself as a dog photographer because the world needs more photos of dogs on social media. And I quickly realized I do not need to be on this. As my friend Jason said, my Instagram game has no chill because the first day I uploaded 16 photos as if I needed to read a rule book what are the rules of Instagram? Do you just unload all of your photos from your phone onto this social media platform? So now my Instagram game has more chill. I'm just going to be a little more chill with it. Okay, if you're sitting there right now and you've listened to all the Andre the Giant bullshit and you heard me rant about social media, you're probably saying, I need to hear the key to life. I have it. it took me a long time, but I have that key. I got it for you. You want it? All right, all you have to do is just think of any condition you have, any ailment, anytime you've been sick or heartbroken, rough times, struggles. Think about it right now. Try to channel it. If you're in a bad mood right now, you're already there. But if you're in a good mood, you're feeling healthy, uh, take your mind to a different time when you weren't. And you realize that everything is passing. Everything is passing. All feelings, all moods. And I failed miserably at understanding this because I was a diagnosed idealist, as if that's a real condition. But I was. I spent most of my life as an idealist, thinking that the goal to life is pure joy, pure, constant joy. And of course, it's not. You're on a roller coaster. Life is a roller coaster. Anybody who says, you got to make every day great, bullshit. Some days are going to be awful. The key is to know that it passes that not all days are going to be awful. When you're in the eye of the storm, when something's feeling sad, painful, when you're stressed out, pissed off, you want to punch a hole through a wall or you want to punch a hole through a human. These are the times to realize, eh, but tomorrow I might feel a little differently, which is why I have to meditate. I've had to incorporate meditation into my life. Mindful meditation, that's what it teaches you. You know, your thoughts, your emotionally charged thoughts, your intense thoughts, it doesn't reflect the depth of the ocean, just a ripple on top of the surface of the ocean. How deep is that? All right, so rough times. You could even think about it with health. My first year teaching, 
This is an interesting one, because I had no clue what a migraine headache was. And the fact that we're still calling them headaches is ridiculous. If you've ever had a migraine, that's not a headache. It's a completely different medical condition. And yes, it's temporary, but when you're in the thick of it, when you're in the middle of a migraine, it is tough to see the light at the end of the tunnel. My first year teaching, right after the final bell of the day, all of a sudden my vision went pixelated. I'll never forget this, and I couldn't see anything to the right or to the left. It all just went dark. But I was just able to see forward like I was looking through a kaleidoscope. And my buddy, my fellow teacher next door, Danny, he came over and said, Hey, Mr. Rosenberg, how was your day? And all I said was, I don't feel right. And he immediately left. He's like, all right, good luck with that. You know, I could have bullshitted some small talk like, doing well, man. Things are great. But I just said, I don't feel right. I can't see to my left and I can't see to my right. So I immediately called Kaiser and they said, come in, but don't drive. As if I'm going to let them send an ambulance to the high school I work at. That's a great first year memory. Hey, the new teacher is leaving on an ambulance. He's got a headache. But of course, I disregarded their instructions and I got in my car and I went to pick up my dog at my mom's. And as I got there, I shouldn't have driven, which was ridiculous. We all do dumb things. But as I got there, she has newspapers on the table, and I realized that I cannot actually read the words. I just saw shapes. I couldn't stream together the letters to make sense of the words. If anybody has had a migraine, like a real severe one, this is what happens. And at that point, here's where it gets a little scary. My arm goes numb, and the left side of my face goes numb. Holy shit! Thought I was having a stroke. I was certain I was having a stroke. So I call Kaiser once again, and they say, Get in here and don't drive. And once again, I drove. That is one of the dumbest things I've ever done. So arm is numb, face is numb, can't make sense of words. And I'm not even feeling a headache. Had it been a headache, as they call them migraine headaches, then I would have been at ease. But as I'm crawling to Kaiser, driving really slowly and taking myself through the doors of the ER, You know, they're admitting me. I'm describing everything I have. And they hook me up to an IV and they put me in a hospital bed, whatever. And I text my wife, hey, I'm not doing so hot. And I told her all the symptoms. But then later in the night, I was there for a few hours. A doctor comes in and says, I think you had a migraine. And right when he said that, all of a sudden you go, oh, okay, good. So I don't have to live this way. It's a bit of a microcosm of mindfulness. Oh, okay. So I might get the occasional migraine. And I've had a few since. But now that you know what's coming... It's easier to deal with. But the first instance of anything that just pierces your heart and it's difficult, it's tough to see that it passes. That's the key to life. Know that things pass and know that it's okay when things are awful. It's okay. That's the actual journey that we're on. That's what life is. And if you're an idealist and you say every relationship has to be great, marriage has to be great every day, it has to be that honeymoon feeling every day, and my job has to be great every day, you are going to suffer It's weird to think about, but one of the things that can hurt the human mind is to think that pure, constant joy is a goal. But if you're going to have the key to life, the key to understanding how to navigate through this world, through this weird thing we call life, it's to know that some days are shitty and that's fine. And some feelings are no good and that's fine. And some health conditions are very weird. Like I have something called mal to disembarkment syndrome. I'm not making this up. I can't go on a boat because it feels like I'm swaying for 30 days afterwards. But it's temporary. It's a rough 30 days. Yeah, I get angry. But I actually had to see a neurologist because I can't go on any boat. And I even mean a little boat, a pontoon boat, a paddle boat, 
The ferry. I live so close to the ferry. I can't get on it. Long flights. It triggers something. I have an imbalance in my ears. You know, the stones in the back of my neck. I don't know what it is. It's just called mal de disembarkment syndrome. And it's like that feeling you ever go on a roller coaster and then for the five minutes when you're done, you still feel like you're on a roller coaster. That for me never goes away. I shouldn't say never, but 30 days minimum. It's about a month of that horseshit feeling. And there's nothing, no prescription. This is not a woe is me, have pity on me type of rant. It's basically just saying if you could capture in your mind the notion that things pass while you're at the pinnacle of the pain, then you are going to have a happier life. Do you now feel like you have a key? Do you feel like you have an additional key on your keychain called the key to life? Nope. If you're like, oh, I waited all along for that bullshit, then I'm sorry. But maybe some of you thought, all right, maybe I'll start meditating. So I am going to get into that at some point on this podcast, because I think meditation, it used to have this reputation of just the hippies out in Fairfax or, oh, just the granola people are into that. But no, it's so mainstream now. There's even books on how corporate America institutes more mindful meditation in the workplace. I think the first time I ever heard about this was Phil Jackson in his book, Zen Hoops, or you just knew about Phil Jackson when he was the great coach of the Bulls, the heyday of Bulls basketball in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. Actually, I'm talking about early, mid, and late 90s. He would have all the guys meditate before the games. Why? All right, I'll get into that in a future podcast. But you can follow me on Twitter, and if you don't, that's totally fine, at jrosenberg957. You can buy my book, Suddenly Facing Reality, on Amazon. Got to talk about books on the next podcast, too. Been reading some, believe it or not, books about stand-up comedians, memoirs. I got to share some of those. But right now, I'm just going to cut off this rant. All right, podcast three in the books. I'll talk to you soon.